0: Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Insight Segment, where we investigate major topics that are shaping biotechnology today. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. Our guest today is Dr. Tony Russo. Tony is the chairman, CEO and founder of Russo Partners, a leading public and investor relations firm. He has been a member of the healthcare and technology public relations and investor relations community for more than three decades. As a founder of Noonan and Russo in 1988, he and his colleagues have helped build signature healthcare brands worldwide. He's a frequent speaker at industry conferences, and Tony has published articles and chapters in numerous scientific magazines, medical journals, and books. Tony, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Joe. So this is a really unique opportunity to have someone of your caliber and, and your experience in the healthcare industry Really, from some of the the nascent beginnings of what we know as the pharmaceutical industry today, uh, I, I really I want to start at the base. Though, so so you have a PhD, uh, and you went on to found uh, Russo Partners initially Noonan and Russo. Um, but I'm wondering uh, what the early days in transitioning out of your PhD were like, and. What were your thoughts coming out of the PhD and and I know a lot of our listeners will be interested uh because they're sort of making those own decisions uh themselves about about what to do with their degree.
1: Well, it's interesting. My um roots can really be traced back to my um time at at Hopkins. Um I was uh had just got my masters at Columbia. Uh, in In psychology, and one of my professors there who uh I had formed a bond with said that I should meet uh this um, professor at Hopkins uh by the name of John Money, and uh, he's doing some very interesting work working with uh sexual dimorphism and uh, hermaphrodites and gender identity and um Mind you, in those days, gender identity was not, um, a term that is, uh, as widely used as, as it is today. I mean, people didn't really know what that meant. And, uh, so I went to meet with him and he offered me a position in the Phipps Clinic at Hopkins. Uh, so I was in the psychiatry department there, uh, working with a lot of, um, what we would call people have five sexes in those days. Money would always say, and there's a the morphologic sex. There's the gender sex, so XY, XX. Uh, X. Uh, there is the uh, hormonal sex, so testosterone, estrogen. Um, there is the psychological sex, what you think you are, um, and then there is the sociological sex, what how people treat you. And so those are all very different things. And he was really the first to think about sex in that way. Um, just saying that, uh, it's not, it's not male, female, boy, girl, but it is what you think you are, what you feel you are, how people treat you. Um, and, and it has to do with also genetics. Um, and so that was my entree into, uh medicine uh so to speak and and science um though i was always interested in science and so i um after that i ended up at um columbia at uh, harvard university and while i was there uh i had a research position in the education department there and i was at a crossroads in terms of thinking well do i want to get my phd now uh or do I want to um, go into another area and get my MBA? A number of the students there were getting their MBAs and um, jobs were uh, increasingly becoming more difficult in in my field. So um, I toyed with that that idea and um, then decided that, indeed, I would get my PhD since I had many of the credits towards that. And uh, when I came out, uh, again, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. So I did uh, do a stint on Wall Street for a while. And and it was there that I was working for a uh, individual who uh, he was a professor at Yale. He was a neuroscientist uh, and he was running a bullying trading company. Um, and around him, he had many PhDs and and they were they were chemists, they were all, all kinds of uh, engineers. And so I would ask him, why do you have all these PhDs? that They know nothing about business. And he said, Well, you know, he said, if you get a PhD, you're obviously a hard worker, you're, you're probably very smart. And uh, these people could learn uh, business. And so I sort of took that lesson with me and uh, as he had me do more writing because his theory was, again, that uh, PhDs could could uh, are probably good writers because they had to write dissertations. And he said, you know, can you um, can you give me uh, a chapter from your dissertation? And I said, sure, absolutely. And I I said, why? He said, well, I just want to make sure you can write. And I said, OK, so I gave him a chapter. And a few days later, I said, well, what did you think? He said, he said, yeah, I, I think you can write. I said, good, so what, what is it you'd like me to write? And so he said, I have this book uh, that's 350 pages that I want you to edit. So anyway, I, I started to do that. And he was pretty prominent in in the area that uh, the firm was based in, which was bullion trading. And, uh, and so he would frequently get, be called by Forbes and fortune and, and all kinds of publications. And I find myself setting up interviews, writing company publications. And I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, but, um, I was doing what I later learned was public relations. One of the, uh, assets of working with this firm was that they allowed you to take courses and uh someone gave me a book uh a uh from from the uh, new school and they had courses in it and i was looking at the courses and one of the courses um they had a whole chapter in communications and i'm reading through it and there was a course called public relations and i and i said you yeah, know this sounds exactly like what i'm doing Maybe there's a methodology to what I'm doing and uh, maybe I could use with a little training because uh, I really am winging it. Um, and I took the course and it was exactly what I was doing. And the teacher said, you know, you're very good at this. Um, why don't you go work for an agency? And I said, well, what's an agency? She said, well, an agency is where they have lots of companies that do lots of different things and. Um, this way you'll have more variety and you'll learn more areas. And so I said, would you write a letter of recommendation? She said, yeah, I'd be happy to. And, and she sort of, uh, guided me through the process. And, uh, I got an, uh, a job with an agency and, and really over the years, uh, while I worked at one agency after the next, I found myself, um, evolving towards healthcare. And I ended up in an agency that had a healthcare department. And Susan Noonan and I, which then became Newton Russo, headed up that department. And it was really in the early days of biotech, this is 1987. So there were maybe 20 firms then. But we were working in healthcare in general. So we would work with uh uh hospitals and um all sorts of of healthcare entities medical technologies um etc and it was really her that said you know i think we can form a specialist agency and so um we did and again the message i took away from my experience on wall street was that you hire phds and if they're good writers they could learn how to write press releases and they could learn how to do communications. Um, And at the time I was the only PhD I knew in the entire field of of public relations. Um, And at that time there was only one um, uh, vertical within public relations and that was financial PR. So you could be a uh, financial PR specialist or you could be a generalist. There was no such thing as, as a healthcare specialist. Um, and so we were uh, one of the uh, very first agencies to be formed. Um, and they, we were all formed right around that period of time in 87 and 88, uh, that just did healthcare. And uh, you know, as I said at the time, there were probably 20 biotech companies. So we had a very broad remit in healthcare, and um, and I realized then that healthcare was becoming increasingly more technical, more complex, and that um, that it was going to require more brain power, and it was going to require people who truly understood um, science, and that uh, we weren't going to form agency of people who had. Uh, Come, come out of college with a history degree or an English degree, but we needed to really hire people who knew science because that was the direction that the world was moving. And um, we began to hire PhDs. And so now, uh, thirty, almost 35 years later, we are uh, working with about 80% of our staff have PhDs. Uh, and the rest, come out of a, a very strong science background. And what that does for us is it really uh bonds us together because we all have a passion for science. And um and it's a group of people that didn't want to spend their careers in a lab. Um they didn't want to teach and they were passionate about science. And um they felt that uh, they wanted to stay within the field, but they wanted to be communicators of science rather than scientists. And and that's what we have. It's a very, it's a passionate group, uh, which is one of our values as an organization. And and, uh, because I've always felt that if someone spends eight, 10 years studying science, they've got to love science um, to, to go through all that um and that passion um is extremely important uh in being able to form client relationships and um and so that's that's um sort of the basis of 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 what we are as an organization and um as a result of working with uh many different branches of science um People with PhDs learn what um, you know. They're learning science every day, uh, but that passion is really what brings us together as a as a team of individuals. And and people are learning new things every day. And, and many uh, of our staff often say that they learn more science uh, at Russo Partners than they did in graduate school because you're learning really about one thing. And you go very deep uh, as a graduate student. Um and in our area we uh we're we're very broad. Um I'll never forget we had one uh PhD, he was a PhD MBA, uh, uh really smart individual. And I had put him on an account that was in the stem cell area, and he said, Tony, he said, I never studied stem cells. I studied lobsters as a uh uh, as a graduate student, and I said, I, he said, I could tell you all about lobsters, but I can't, really, I can't tell you about stem cells. I said, I said, Robert, I said, uh, I'm sure you'll be an expert, um, in a few weeks. And sure enough, in a few weeks, he was an expert. Um, and, and that's sort of what it does. It gives you the grounding to be able to ask the questions, to be able to do the research, to, you know, be able to dig deep. And uh so, so you can give projects to people that they have no uh real understanding of, but they have a fundamental knowledge that's gonna get them there quickly.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I want to get back to that enrichment of PhDs in Russo Partners uh later. I thought you gave a really nice primer on how your interest in science kind of coalesced with your experience and interest in communications. Um I, I wanna go back to the motivation for founding your own specialist firm. Uh, I would imagine, you know, maybe there's some risk in there and you had the foresight to know that healthcare and and what would eventually become biotech uh, was growing. But, you know, with, with only about 20 firms around at the time, I, I would think that maybe there would be some risk and, and if there were a lot of specialist firms coming out, um, there would be some competition can you give us a little bit more background on on what the landscape of life sciences was like back then and uh, how you were able to be successful in in that environment
1: uh well i i would say in the early days we really um, had to be uh, very broad Uh, so we did work with a lot of big hospital chains and we worked with even uh, legal specialist firms we worked with um, doctor groups, so we were we were broad, um, but we also had the good fortune to be taken on by um, two individuals at the time that were um, one of the uh, real pioneers and founders in biotech, and so this this uh, was a, uh, a a team of two brothers. Uh, they were um, David and Isaac Black um and they were they had formed at the time a company uh called genetic systems that they sold to bms for uh it was over 300 million dollars at that time it, it it you know could have been uh 30 billion dollars it, it was such an outrageous amount of, of money um and then they went on to form uh a number of other companies Uh, some of whom have morphed into uh, larger companies and and some that haven't. Uh, But they always believed uh, to uh, um, make money and to be taken seriously uh, by the pharmaceutical company had to look like a pharmaceutical company. Uh, So they hired us to make their fledgling uh, companies. Sometimes there were no more than four or five people look like a fully integrated pharmaceutical company um and uh so we would do uh, get uh, these companies a lot of media exposure and 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 uh and and so as they would create companies uh they would um i don't want to say they had to work for us but um they would be pushed in our direction and uh we had to uh make them look the part of a pharmaceutical company. And, and they would also help the process by um, putting Nobel laureates on the board of directors of these companies. So, so we were fortunate in that sense that um, we had a feeder source. Not that there were a, a lot of companies that they formed over the years. They probably only formed about, uh, I, I, my guess, is 13 to 15 companies. Um, but so that was one source. And then we had other sources, um, in terms of the bankers that were forming companies and, um, and we, uh, we worked with a lot of, um, banking groups as well. So we, we quickly by nature of our uniqueness and, um, you know, our ability to handle, uh, technical, uh, uh um, companies um uh got a lot of this business and really developed a, a reputation very early on so that when we left the firm that we were at to form Noonan and russo we already had a reputation so people were sending us business and when we formed the firm um under advisement of legal counsel we were told that we cannot take any any accounts with us that we already had. And of course, we uh, 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 we adhere to that. Um, but after about six months, we were allowed to take on clients and um, the ones that stuck around uh, at our previous agency decided to come with us. So we had a, a, a pretty great start. Uh, and then much of the competition that we got actually happened probably 10 or 15 years into our existence. And that competition was really our own past employees. Uh, Many of the groups uh, that are out there today um, are being run by former employees of ours. Um, So we spawned this uh, you know, this, uh, sector, um, in, within, uh, public relations and investor relations that, um, has, uh, a lot of, a lot of roots to, to new Yeah,
0: that's great. I, I think, you know, it's a really interesting perspective, looking back to know what it was like then let's maybe have a discussion about what biotech is like now from your perspective, Um, both from the standpoint of communications, right, with the internet, uh, our ability to disseminate information is greater than it has ever been, and technology. I mean, even in the last 10 years, it's just been this incredible boom with genetic engineering and uh, new therapeutic modalities and uh artificial intelligence integrating into the the biomedical sciences realm so so from your perspective uh top down what does what the life sciences industry look like now
1: well I think Joe you're 100 percent correct I mean it is um totally different uh today than it was really even 10 years ago uh we um put out the first genomics announcement Ever, um, and it was uh, for the first physical map of the human genome in the 1990s. And in that release, um, I remember uh, writing it. Uh, we we couldn't even uh, talk about the internet. Uh, we had to talk about it in terms of the uh, that new superhighway, to the internet. Um, and this was when Gore was vice president, and he was talking about this internet. And so, um, uh, you know, that was, that was the early nineties. Um, and then throughout the period of the nineties, we, uh, put out the first announcements in bioinformatics and functional genomics and, and what later became personalized medicine, but was then pharmacogenomics. Um, and so increasingly over the years, we've been front and center, um, to um uh being able to talk about and create the language for oh, a lot yeah. of the new technologies oh, that yeah, exist today yeah. um and so we um uh and and i think we were able to do that because we had the technical prowess uh, and understanding to um uh to be able to create the right language the right lexicon for these um, technologies. But I think it's just getting more so um, as we move forward. And there's going to be a further integration um, of med tech into biotech. I think uh, uh, you're going to see a lot more happening there. Today, you see a lot of uh, uh, concerns about uh, technology and the impact it's starting to have on on, uh on teenagers um, and how that uh is um, having uh an impact on uh their uh mental health their somatic health and um I I, I think uh as time uh goes on we're going to see further integration of how um, biology uh interacts with uh mental health and um and genetic health um and we're working with um an organization now that is uh trying to flip the paradigm of um health and uh make medicine more about preventative health than about uh treating uh, disease and health. And so this organization that's um, being put together by uh, Lee Hood at University of Washington called Phenome uh, Sciences is uh, uh, believes that we have all the information that we need to uh, further move into predictive medicine so that I can tell you, Joe, if in 20 years you're going to get cancer um, and with that information, you could alter your lifestyle. Um, you could start to eat different foods. You can, you know, maybe, uh, uh, uh see your doctor more often. Um, so the paradigm will be one of preventative health and, uh, preventive disease to, uh, moving away from, uh, curative. And, um, you know, that's where I see the the future going is we have so much information now, what, how can we harness it in to, um, uh, to prevent disease and to diet, you know, maybe the same age you might diet or maybe 10 years live 10 years longer, but die healthy, uh, when, um, your, your body uh expires um and not of disease
0: yeah and i I think those are some really interesting um future forward-looking perspectives i'm wondering from the communication side how has the ability to more easily disseminate information through the internet um uh, allowed this sort of uh boom of of new startup biotech companies to happen, right? So, so is it enabling startup companies to more easily gain investment, or uh, you know, get information about good science out? It, it seems like there's just been uh, an incredible number in the last ten years of, of new biotech companies being founded. Uh, how does communication enable that? Um, I think it it plays a very big role. Uh, you mentioned social media.
1: Social media. Um, is critical i think right now um, for for companies because so much of um the world uh is it gets us information from social media so uh if companies want to raise money you have your investor groups that will go to social media for their information um uh if you um are trying to get to kols or to um uh interest groups special interest groups uh social media really is your ad um so a lot of our programs are really geared at understanding who those audiences are understanding what the messages are for those groups um looking at how to get people to follow you what is the type of information that you need to put out there. What are they responding to? How are they responding to it? How quickly are they responding to it? Uh, is it within the first hour? Um, where are you getting your clicks? So we um, look at the analytics um, uh, very carefully with social media and try to understand. And, and it's very different for different companies. and with different messages and, um, but how do you craft those messages and how do you put out the sort of substance that your target audiences are ultimately gonna be interested in? And those messages are gonna differ, uh, whether you're a patient, whether you're a doctor, uh, whether you're a scientist, whether you're an investor. And um, so we spend a lot of time, Um, not just putting content out in in the social media, but really understanding how the content is viewed and understanding how to, um, better craft the content for that particular company and how to use information that's coming out, uh, from the labs, uh, of that company. What are the conferences that are important? Why are they important? How to pull out the information from those conferences to further leverage them, uh, uh, leverage that information into, um, interest. Um, I would say a chunk of our time is really, um, spent on, um, better understanding our audiences. And now even with, um, uh, some of these analytical tools, uh, the way a CEO talks, uh, the way he or she presents herself at a meeting the tone of voice all of those are factors that um have an impact on on share price um and so uh a- as time marches on we have more and more analytical tools to better understand um how to have a more focused a more productive uh, conversation, and um, how to achieve whatever goals the company needs to achieve. Often, those goals are financing goals. They may be deals that they, um, they may, uh, want to do. They may want to, you know, further their presence in a different field. They may want to get patients for clinical trials. So um, now you have uh, new tools all the time that are helping us get to a better place where we can self-select and um, be able to, for example, if we needed more diverse clinical trials, how do we do that? How do we get to those audiences? What are the messages we need? Um, And uh, it's no longer an effort of just putting together a grassroots campaign, but it may be uh, to get into certain verticals with certain messages, utilizing certain people, um, influencers that didn't exist uh, 10 years ago that suddenly are people that perhaps you never heard of, but in the community you want to reach are very important. Um, So, you know, I would say that um, what we do now is uh, highly specific, um, and it is highly segmented. But you have to have a very broad vision in terms of uh, what you want to do and how you want to get there, and, and you have to really understand what are the uh, what are the verticals to get there.
0: It's clear that this, like most industries, uh, PR and IR are becoming much more data driven, and and I find that really interesting. Uh I'm wondering how you adapt. Um and, and like you said, it's from the standpoint of uh all of these different individuals who, who uh may be you know targets of a media campaign. Uh how how do you adapt to changing tides both in technology and in uh things like data analytics and the ways in which people communicate?
1: We we're always um adapting um I, I i feel that we have to be ahead of the curve um if we're going to survive and uh if i look back to where we were 30 years ago uh we didn't even have the emails emailed then, um so it, it you know the the world has changed so much for us in communications people would hire PR firms i'll never forget we hired we were hired by a big um pharmaceutical uh, company. Uh, this was maybe 20 years ago. And uh, it, it was a big win. It was a big budget. Uh, it was uh, it was really transformative for us as an agency to win that business. But uh, after we won it, we were talking to them, to them about strategy and about plans. And uh, they said, you know what? Um, we would like you to come into our office and tell us what what PR is. And so we we laughed. We said, what do, you, "What do you mean? You just spent all this money?" Uh And they they said, "No, no, we're we're absolutely serious. We want you to come in and explain what you do. What is PR?" And so so that was the that was the landscape then. P- people would spend would have a line item um uh, budget and and but they would they didn't know what it was and they didn't know how to measure it and i think today you can really measure these things um and increasingly you can measure it whether it's clicks to your website or i don't like to uh use this as as a, a measurement but investors uh New investors uh, in your stock, um, excitement on the message boards, um, all of these things um, are uh, are are becoming important. So, um, you know, I just think that uh, we've had to keep up over the years. Um, I've always believed strongly in education. Um, And so we're always encouraging people to go out and to learn about the new systems and new metrics, uh, what other people are doing um, and to hire people who have uh, a vision, who are creative. Um, I I'm a big believer in in creativity and how how do you. Think about things differently. And and I and I do think that this is where the science comes in, because if you have people who fundamentally understand what a company is doing and are excited about it, they'll begin to think about that uh, company differently and think about how can we better Service that company, and 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 I think this is where knowledge is power, um, and that added to uh, just keeping up with what's going on uh, in the industry is uh, is fundamental, and 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 so I I'm a big believer in trying to to the extent that we can stay in front of things and be more of a creative force in the
0: industry rather than a follower. Getting a bit more granular in, in thinking about public relations and and the needs of your clients, I'm wondering what a large pharma might need public relations wise versus what the needs are of maybe a startup or a small biotech and how those things are different and and potentially how, how there might be similarities between the two.
1: Well, I think for a small biotech, it's really about survival and it's always about raising money. Um, And uh, so a big audience is always going to be your investors and uh, and pharmaceutical companies who may want to do deals with you or large biotech companies. And so that is at the top of the list of most small companies that we deal with. And of course, a lot of it's around messaging and um, uh, developing your key messages, the position for the company, uh, the communications uh, uh, vehicles, such as the website, the slide presentations. So it's a lot of basic uh, core um, uh projects that you're involved in that are really fundamental to the life of the company um the CEO of a small biotech company practically sleeps with his or her slide deck uh, they're constantly constantly um revising it um and thinking about how to put a good presentation together uh in pharma you you don't you don't have that. I mean, you, you have people internally who do those cr- kinds of things. And the conversation there becomes one of um, strategy. And it becomes one of um, what are the right opportunities for us to cherry pick. Uh, so for example, one of our clients is CVS Pharmacy. They're a Fortune 4 company. They're uh, So they're huge, but we uh, and and they have a lot of opportunities that come their way. But the question is, what are the best opportunities? What are the smart opportunities? What can we best leverage with the team we have? Um, How can we achieve the results that we want to reach receive in a specific area? So it's not about um, just getting broad exposure. It's getting exposure in the right places at the right time. Um, And, um, you know, finding out how to, since these companies have bigger budgets, how to, if you're going to be at a conference, um, is it more than a presentation? Is uh, Is it a keynote address? Is it uh and how do you better leverage that keynote address is it a panel discussion what do you do with that panel discussion um how do you utilize it over social media um so it's it's far more strategic um, and it's also far more granular
0: and i think that's a good transition to get back to the people doing the work we talked about the russo partners difference really you know, hiring a lot of PhDs and, and hiring people who are really scientifically inclined and, and interested in the technology. I'm wondering if you could give us a bit more information about how PhDs fit into the science communications work stream. What, what sort of things are they uh, helping their clients with? And, and specifically, what qualities make PhDs particularly effective in those roles?
1: Well, um, I'll I'll give you um, an example. We, we of course, get um, a lot of peer-reviewed articles that we have to write uh, press releases uh, based on. um, And we have to put together strategies around those releases. We will get patents. um, And once we had hired a PhD, and um, sure enough, the very first announcement for the account that uh, she was on Um, had a patent that they wanted a press release on. And so having worked on patents myself over the years, um, I said to this woman, you know, I want you to just read the abstract a few times. Don't worry about the patent. You you don't need to read the patent. Uh, Since many patents are uh, hundreds of pages in length, uh, I said, "Read, read the abstract. A few times, and then we'll have a discussion. And so, uh, three days later, she called me up. She said, "Tony, she said, I need to talk to you." I said, "Oh, I said, I know. Um, just uh, don't worry." Um, uh, did Did you read the abstracts? And I and she said, "Yes, sir. of course, I read the abstract." She said, I, "I." I said, "Did you read it a few times?" She said, "Yeah." yeah. She said, "I." Tony, I, I read the patent. And I said, what? She said, I, I read the the patent. I said, you read the whole patent? She said, yeah. She said, I read it three times. I said, what? She said, I read it three times. She said, I, I understand the patent. She said, but the draft press release this client wrote is, is wrong. And I said, I don't. She said, I don't know what to do. And I said, oh, I said, we have a problem. Um, but, but that's, that's, uh, and we had an example that very same example this past week, uh, where there were things in a patent that the client was unaware of, um, and the, the ability to be able to catch those kinds of mistakes, which happen a lot, um, cause, uh, you know, can prevent disgrace. Can prevent precipitous stop drops, um, angry shareholders, lawsuits. Um, and I think we're able to do that because we're able to understand the science. We're able to understand what, uh, patent council, what, you know, scientists, um, are saying and how to best put together illustrations, how to best put together language um, so that uh, we are not being disingenuous, um, but um, are being clear, are being precise, um, and um, are uh, not uh, implying things that uh, perhaps uh, um, are, are, are wrong and and can lead to to lawsuits later on down the
0: road that's really i i think uh, a a strong message for why phds fit into this ecosystem having that really you know technical background and and ability to really look at a document a highly technical document and and kind of suss out exactly what that document is saying and what it's not saying uh so so i think that will be a message that resonates with our listeners in thinking about their own future career perspectives if they really enjoy that aspect of grad school reading papers uh, looking at claims and and trying to think of ways that you could either support or refute claims that that seems uh, very very interesting uh, I, I read that in another capacity, you were on the board of directors for the March of dimes. A philanthropic organization what role does giving back have uh, for you and what role do philanthropic organizations surrounding life sciences and healthcare have on the industry in, in general I'm, I'm interested in your perspective on that
1: well the march of dimes is an organization uh, where 80 percent of the money they uh, raise goes to basic research and um, they were also the only organization to ever work on a disease that has been cured, uh, and and I say that with some hesitation because polio really hasn't been cured as as we know. Um, but uh, uh, but they they were very effective in what they did as far as uh, the creation of that vaccine and the impact that it had on. On life in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and and, and thereafter. So, um, and and I've always felt that uh, part of science and part of what we do uh, has to have a, a piece of giving back to the community, um, and that's uh, part of what we do at at Noonan Russo. We do work with not-for-profits um We do work that um, pro bono, uh, we try and help uh, organizations um, in areas that align with our mission as an organization, um, better health, helping in areas such as basic science that get very little funding these days and very little credit and have uh the potential to fundamentally change uh medicine. Uh you know, if you look at uh, for example, a lot of the work that's been done in the m, m- mRNA area, I mean it came out of basic science, um and and uh and you know ditto for for polio and and other areas. So um uh, I'm a believer in um uh trying to help those companies and a lot of the work that i've done in that area really is around communications helping them raise money it's it's really about raising money for those organizations and so with the march of dimes we uh i i tried to, i headed up the communications uh committee there but i i tried to get them into social media um and um helping them uh target younger audiences through the social media um, and as, as one way to raise money uh, quickly. So that's part of, of what I've um, done, I would say throughout my life um, was um, target one or two or three organizations um, that I felt I had the skills Um, and the resources to be able to help them in, in a fundamental way to continue on to their, with their operations. If I, you know, felt those operations were in line with, with, with my thinking. And so a lot of my, uh, work has involved, uh, organizations like the Marshall Dimes, um, that are, are doing very, very good work and really giving back to the community um but um are not getting the kind of recognition that they should be getting for the work that they're doing
0: yeah that's a great cause for for basic research to to close do you have any other advice that you could offer to phd students looking to transition out of the academic space and and maybe into uh some other career like public relations
1: sure well um we always uh Tell people that we're taking a big risk on them. People who come to, into our organization who have no uh, communications background, and so um, it's it's a give and take. They they take a risk coming coming to us because uh, we're in a field that they have no understanding of, and ditto for us. And so you have to understand that. Um, is something that um, you want to try and one thing that we do for potential uh, staff members is to offer them the possibility of part-time work um, or uh, uh, hourly work until they uh, decide that it is what they want to do Um, And we decide that we want to have them as a staff member. So to find a position where you can dabble um, in the area, because probably you're not going to know what you want. Um, You may want to be a consultant. You may want to go into the financial side. You may want to be a freelance writer. Um, There are lots of Possibilities, and um, to be able to take the time um, and earn uh, money doing it uh, through a position where you can um, better have the data to be able to make um, a better decision, um, I, I think it is the kind of position that you want to find. Whether that's an internship, whether it's even to volunteer, um, but but to um that, to to uh, um uh, to to try things out. Um and um you know i think increasingly there are uh uh sites that people can go to that um have uh job postings for people who come out of uh PhD programs or highly technical programs. And so those are worth looking at, because you you get a sense of what are the jobs out there for the kinds of educational background that you have. Um, And and then just to talk to people who have made that kind of leap um, and to understand what it is they do day to day. Uh, I, I had a conversation yesterday with a PhD who just joined our firm. And I said, is it what you thought it was. And this was a woman who um, she, uh, she had worked on Wall Street for a number of years, uh, in addition to getting her PhD. And she said, Well, she said, some of it is and some of it isn't. And I said, Well, what is it, you know, and she said, Well, I just um, uh, I, I spend less time doing technical writing and more time doing consulting. And I uh, find and and she's only in and has only been in the job for, I would say, about six weeks. And she said, I really find it interesting that I now get to talk to CEOs. And they're real people. They're vulnerable people. They um, have issues that I think I can help with. Um, and I offer an outside perspective for them. And I didn't get that kind of access when I was on Wall Street or certainly when I was in the lab. I was speaking to people at a whole different level, and I was never getting in front of the client. And she said that that I find. Um, uh, to be something that I wasn't expecting, and and was was a pleasant surprise. Um, and part of that surprise was was being taken seriously uh, by those CEOs that she's had the uh, the pleasure of interacting with over the last six weeks. Um, you know, so I think sampling um, and getting yourself into situations where you truly understand what the job is and you're not just reading about it or talking to someone, but doing it is important because once you get into the job and then there are no surprises and you can commit rather than wonder if you made the wrong move.
0: Yeah. Tony, thank you so much for joining us today and talking to us about your perspectives on the industry in the last three decades and uh, providing some advice for students who are interested in, in public relations. I, I think uh, it, it, you've made it clear that there's a role for PhDs in science communication that is very valuable. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins biotech podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.